0: Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards is hosting today and joined by Peter Martin after a week-long longing for you across the state lines. Uh, pleasure to have you back, as always. Yeah, good to be back. And of course, with his return, we'll be beginning with our rhetoric lessons, but noting the main format of the broadcast is to answer your Bible questions, feel free to send them along to us. We have an email address, which is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. However, since we do not control the, uh, I guess, uh, job security, if you will, on those platforms specifically, you can join us on our website, which is most preferred, at calvarychristianfellowship.com, Fellowship.com. C a l v a r y or and if you click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, it will be set in the purple bar, you will be sent to ccftucson.online.church. There you can engage with us not only as the broadcast is unfolding, but watch previous broadcasts and leave questions as the broadcast unfolds on the right-hand side of the screen. If you're joining us on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, note that it only takes one I guess, uh, archiving of our email address. If you want that spelled out for you for future use or for texting, hopefully not while you're driving, but uh, if you have the opportunity, it will be spelled out for you at the bottom of the screen on any of our platforms as well. It is questions for hope at gmail.com. The questions is plural The is spelled for is spelt F O R hope at gmail.com. And we'll be looking forward to receiving questions from you through any or all of those venues, our Twitter page, Scott, r4h at twitter.com is also available to receive your questions. We'll of course be answering them on the air, but if you want to participate in these, just note the standards for our questions are sincere Bible questions. If they are sincere, that means you want to hear the answer. If they are about the Bible, that means the substance of the answer is the Bible, not going beyond that. And of course, uh, other religions too, we can clarify the things that we've studied and engagements for personal evangelism, but that itself is also biblical. Earnestly contend for the faith, give a reason for the hope that is within you, all those uh, familiar phrases. But all that being said as well, if you get Jeopardy! points or asking your question in the form of a question. Those are the only standards we'll hold to you. Apart from that, as long as you meet the criteria, we'll be happy to take time during the broadcast to address your question. But of course, we don't want to be the ones taking that on ourselves. Uh, since you've been deprived of the uh, honor for some time, Peter, want to take this moment to pray and ask God to speak during the broadcast?
1: Yeah. Uh, Father, we love you so much. We're thankful for you. We're thankful that you've saved us, that you've given us life in your Son, We do pray that right now we'd be able to focus in on the truth that's contained in your word and that we'd be able to exalt and glorify that truth. And those listening would be able to understand it a little bit better. Uh, grow in their walk and their relationship with you as a result. And in your name, amen. That
0: is true. Now, again, regarding rhetoric, the ability to communicate and communicate effectively, we've talked about listening and we've also talked about keeping your thoughts straight. But now, moving into the ways in which your thoughts aren't so straight, we've discussed probably what composes 90% of internet interactions and in only two videos referring to the fallacies that people bring to them. And note, not necessarily having your thoughts straight doesn't mean you're wrong, but it needs to be presented in a more consistent manner. And in the ways that people put forward information, usually when they step beyond first grade and with name-calling and with accusations rather than responses to the actual argument, people think that they're getting into the realm of intellectualism when they say, well, this source or this scholar or even that authority foreshadowing uh, would say that I'm right on this matter, or they would say this and that is that a good way to discover truth because smart people said it
1: uh no so that's uh as sean said he already kind of alluded to it this is the logical fallacy called the appeal to authority so uh, we have tackled some of the biggest ones the strandman fallacy and uh, just going over rhetoric as a whole, ad hominem, which are big ones. This would probably be the third. So I think we have been kind of taking them in order, uh, <laughs> in my opinion, of the ones that I see the most, the fallacies that I see the most. This is one that I would say Christians actually fall into the most when they evangelize, that they appeal to scriptural authority as opposed to defending the scripture as a means of authority and we'll talk more about that in a second but to just put it plain and simple an appeal to an authority is me making a point and then me saying the way that you know that what i'm saying is right is because this thing says that i'm right right and pointing or that thing or this source or so if i say like well studies show or scientists say or my pastor told me or I was reading this article the other day, those are all appeals to an authority. And they only really carry weight if the person you're talking to also accepts that as an authority. If they don't accept it as an authority, then it means nothing. You are like two ships passing in the night, it really doesn't accomplish anything. So we're gonna give an example from scripture of when someone does this, and we're going to see a response to this appeal for authority. So this is Matthew chapter 15, And verse 1, then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, what they're referring to is they're referring to an authority that was big in that day and actually continues to be big. This called the Mishnah. So when you go to the Old Testament, you have the first five books of Moses that contain what we call the law, right? This is the law that God gives to the nation of Israel that not only helps them understand the morality of God, but they also understand the political implications of that morality and how to implement it in the nation. Now, on top of the law... Certain rabbis began to write what was called the Mishnah. This is kind of like an interpretation of the law or an elaboration of the law. And it began that way, but then it started to morph into well, you know, Moses wrote down the law. But he also heard stuff that he just didn't, it didn't make it into the cut, you know? It didn't make it, if it got left on the cutting room floor, this is the director's cut, you know? This is the real stuff, you know? This is the, they called it the oral law. They really believed that Moses heard this interpretation of the law on Mount Sinai, but he just didn't write it down, and it's been preserved through oral tradition all this time. So if you even talk to Orthodox Jews today, they still believe in the Mishnah. They really believe that Moses did receive this oral tradition from on high, and
0: that they're trying to implement it the best way they can. And depending who you're talking to, they might even hold it in higher regard to their scripture. So you have to be aware of that. Absolutely. And and there are many
1: Christian denominations that do the same thing. They believe yeah. that there were apostolic traditions that were not written down. They were never written down, but they were passed on orally through particular individuals in the early church. And our church has... The real traditions of the early church. Yours doesn't, but ours does. We're the one
0: true church. And we that, verified it at this point in history, or under these circumstances, Well, oh, what authority is that? Well, the traditions that are verifying this authority, which is not circular at all, we'll deal with that on another day.
1: Exactly. So when you get into an appeal for authority, that's what's being discussed. So this is what they're doing. They're looking at this authority, the Mishnah, and they're saying, you are wrong, Jesus. You're not a real teacher. How do we know you're not a real teacher? Because you violate the Mishnah. Now, Jesus is going to respond to this very well. So he's he's going to say, okay, well, that's not a real authority. I don't accept that as an authority. And I'll give you a reason as to why I don't accept it as authority. And we'll get to that in one second. But you need to be attuned when you hear people speak, right? When you hear pastors speak, when you hear politicians, especially politicians speak, when you hear scientists speak. If someone alludes to an authority that's not proof, of what they're trying to say, right? If you're making a point, you cannot just appeal, even if it's an accredited authority, you cannot just simply wave your hand and say, well, it says it here. The only exception to that rule would be scripture And that's
0: only if you've already accepted Scripture as an infallible revelation of God. And even then, you would only be able to stand on those feet if you have taken the time to know why you trust Scripture. Exactly. And you can't—by the way, people also uh,
1: commit this fallacy when they appeal to Scripture, so it's an accredited authority, but they appeal to it wrong. So they misquote passages. They take them out of their proper context. They cherry-pick. They eisegesis, meaning that they fixate on one verse and uh, complete isolation to other verses or other contexts of Scripture or what they might mean, right? This is, again, an appeal to an authority. This is saying, Scripture says. Now, this is very important. I don't care who
0: says what. I care why they say what. And what they said. Exactly. Because as our uh, beloved Oxford-trained mathematician, which is, again, not relevant to this conversation for his rightness, but the truthfulness of his Irish accent-spoken observation, nonsense from the mouths of geniuses is still nonsense. That's right. So, so. And
1: he's he's referring, by the way, to a quote from Stephen Hawking where he said that philosophy is dead. Uh,
0: Brilliant, brilliant astrophysicist But oh, oh, Stephen
1: (laughs) (laughs) So someone's intelligence, someone's credentials They don't mean that that person's going to be right Someone could have zero credentials and be a complete ignoramus and be right And someone could have all the credentials on the world and be wrong So once again, we don't really care so much And this is how you kind of are able to infer the appeal to authority You shouldn't really care who is saying it You should care why they're saying it. Show your work. I don't care if you are a scientist. I don't care if you are a scholar. That does bring me to the place of knowing that you at least have studied this information, but you could still make a wrong guess. Now, this is really interesting because in a brave new world, uh, atheists during Aldous Huxley's day. So Huxley was an atheist, lived uh, back in the early 1900s. And most scientists, most people who were studying in the field of academia at the time were saying, won't it be so great when the appeal to authority never exists, uh, it doesn't exist anymore, when we get rid of... Because what they thought is the appeal to authority fallacy only comes from religious orthodoxy. And once we get rid of those religious zealots, then we'll be rid of appeal to authority. That fallacy will totally go out of vogue. Now, in A Brave New World, there's a really interesting part where the main characters, and again, Huxley's an atheist while he's writing this, but the main characters meet the person who's the head of this society, a guy named Mustafa Mond, and he's talking to them about his, uh, basically how he's running the world. And they say, well, what about science? Because essentially he's saying he arbitrarily does whatever he wants. And they're like, what about science? Aren't you a man of science? And he says, yeah, but science is a cookbook, and I'm the head chef now. Now, what he's saying is that eventually we're going to get This is Huxley's prediction. Eventually we're going to get to the place in society where the scientists become the priests of our society and the orthodoxy becomes whatever they say. They will no longer have to show why they believe what they believe. They will only have to point to their credentials, and people will accept it as gospel truth. right? So that was his theory. That's It wasn't really happening at the time he said it, but it is absolutely fact now. People don't feel the need to explain why they believe things. And even, again, if you listen to debates, especially like Christians versus Muslims, Muslims do this a lot, they will quote scholars, and they'll just say, well, this scholar says this. It's been debunked. Right. It's been debunked. Well, this scholar said that that's not true. Therefore, it's not true. That is, again, it's an appeal to an authority. They're just pointing to some sort of an authoritative character. And then when someone pushes back, oh, so you say you disagree with the scholars? You with your, you know, me my my one year of community college under my belt and I dropped out. It'd be like, you with your high school diploma, you're going to doubt this person with PhD from Oxford and all the credentials behind it. And again, today yeah yes. <laughs> nonsense from the mouths of scientists remains nonsense you know you you could have all the credentials in the world but you could still be very much wrong jesus is listening to what these people are saying and yeah the mishnah has a long history it had been around for hundreds of years at this point people had been utilizing it as an authority as as sean put it the authority in a lot of places. The Mishnah was taking the place, and Jesus points out this, by the way, uh, it was taking the place of Scripture itself. They were looking to the Mishnah as being higher than Scripture. Now, Jesus could have easily gone along and said, oh, okay, well, the Mishnah says this, let me talk about the Mishnah for a second, but he's instead going to take a step back, and this is very important. When an appeal to authority is used, you must question the authority. That is the only place you can go from that point. You cannot keep following their track because if you keep following their track, you're going to miss the rot that's at the core, at the center of their argument. You have to go back to what the authority is. Why are you saying this? Why do you trust this as an authority? Now, uh, so real quick, uh, a couple things to clarify, and then we're going to get into Jesus' response. Number one, again, Christians do this a lot, right? So when they evangelize, they'll be like, well, Scripture says you're evangelizing, they don't accept scripture. (laughs) You cannot say scripture says this, right? Well, God says that that's wrong. Great. They don't believe in God, right? Your job is to defend your authority. It's not to tell them dogmatically what the authority says. You have to first defend the authority before you can appeal to it. That's very, very important. And by the way, it's amazing. It's it's incredible to me. I think this is actually great evidence that the Bible is inspired by God, because Jesus never doesn't appeal to authority. He never says, "Believe me, because I'm the Son of God." Uh, Believe me, because it says so in uh, this revelation that I wrote down conveniently in my handwriting. You know, <laughs> like I I hear directly from God. So you know, and and a lot of, by the way, all cults. Begin with leaders that do that, right? Why should you believe me? Because God said, right? God told me this, and you're just not privy to this revelation, but I am, and and therefore this is how you know that I'm legit. Uh, If you want a good bit of entertainment, read in the Hadith, every time someone asks a scientific question of Muhammad, And look at his answer where he appeals to authority. It's kind of humorous.
0: (laughs) Or if you don't want to have to deal with Google Translate in the Arabic, you can just look up the first chapter of Doctrines and Covenants and note Mormonism's origins with the first vision of Joseph Smith. Then examine it according to certain cartoons from a, uh, I guess, third-person perspective, and maybe even Broadway plays, if you're into that sort of thing, the Book of Mormon did a very good job at showing this is just silly.
1: Yeah, exactly. So appeals to authority, they're always centered on a figure or some sort of edifice, some sort of structure, like the Jehovah's Witness, they have the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, that's kind of like their their uh, papal cathedral, you know, that's their Vatican, essentially. So like they look to it, and they're like, this is the ultimate authority, they said it, it's scripture, that's fact. That's the idea. So uh, the first way that Christians can miss this point is, again, you have to defend the authority before you appeal to it. So if you're going to evangelize to somebody and you're going to try to get them to Scripture, you have to first establish that Scripture is true. Or even if you're going to talk to them about Jesus, you got to have the—if you're going to talk to an atheist about Jesus, do they accept the historical documents that talk about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Do they do they accept them at all? Do they believe that they've been corrupted? Do they believe that they're mythical? Do they believe that... You know, you got to figure out what people accept as authority before you could start appealing to those authorities, and, and then you can
0: go through it. And, and that's just assuming that you're giving references. The best way to avoid the appeal to authority fallacy is to don't just make the claim. Yeah. Don't <laughs> say someone else said it. You say it and own up to it. And then, then ev- defend it. Yeah. yeah. In evangelism, you don't have to say, well, the Gospel of John says... Says, and this is divine revelation that God loved the world and that he gave his son. You can just say, hey, can I tell you what God's done for you? That's not an appeal to authority. That's a statement made about me and God. Exactly. Now, I can get challenged. That's right. So someone but... challenges
1: you, then you got to, again, you got to show your work. Yeah. Why do I believe this? And, that, and that's how you do it. You don't just say, well, the Bible says so. You know, that, that's, that's bad. Again, I've heard Christians do that. I have done that don't do that right this is this is a bad way of convincing people of the truth now another thing that's really important is when you go through the letters of the apostles again they could have done this they could have been like well the reason why you should listen to me is because i said it i'm an apostle with a capital a you know like how dare you even question me but you always see them use logic they use scriptural references they use just normal everyday things that you would just see and observe in
0: nature relevant to their audience relevant speaking to, to Jews they quote the Old Testament speaking to Greeks they quote their own philosophers but they make sure that that's what's understood on common ground absolutely so the appeal authority but the the second way that Christians can miss this is
1: when you are talking to someone from a cult or talking to someone who you know is spouting off any type of information and they are using this fallacy, Christians have a difficult time challenging the authority, and we need to get a lot better at that. So if you're going to talk to a Jehovah's Witness, you better know why their authority is bad, because anything you show them in the Bible, they're just going to say, well, the Watchtower has already divinely translated this, right? I already know what this says. I know you're showing me in the Greek that this is exactly what it said in the original manuscripts. I don't care, the Watchtowers already interpreted this and they're infallible, so therefore I believe them. Right. You could show Mormons, it's one of their articles of faith. The Bible is correct as so long as it is translated correctly. Well, how do you determine how if it's translated correctly? if it lines up with our authority, if it lines up with what the Mormon Church says. Uh, And again, with Muslims, same deal, right? They have this other thing that the the scriptures have been corrupted. Well, how do you know which parts have been corrupted and which parts haven't been corrupted? The parts that line up with what Muhammad said, those are right on. The parts that don't, those have been corrupted. That's how they do it.
0: And it's easier to deal with Muslims on this regard because the thing they're testing our scriptures with says that our scriptures can't be altered or changed, but that's another issue. (laughs) Absolutely. So... Uh, And and this is uh, increasingly difficult
1: in our day and age when you talk to people uh, who aren't uh, religious at all, right, atheists, because, again, they quote these scientific authorities because they believe that the the science can't be wrong. That's why we hear people saying the science now. That's a weird transition that only happened in the last like 10 years. People didn't used to talk like that. Why? Because science is a methodology in discovering truth. It is not a list of orthodox statements. You can't say the science because there is no such thing as the science. There is the scientific method and you could either follow that correctly or incorrectly, but there's no such thing as the science. So uh, it's becoming increasingly hard to show people like, no, no just because a scientist said this actually does not make it fact, and we need to investigate this a little bit further. So how does Jesus deal with this? Verse 3, he answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? So what's he doing? He's calling into question the authority. Now, this sounds like a uh, non sequitur. It sounds like he's going in a completely different direction, because remember, what is the topic about? Washing hands. Right now, if Jesus fell into the trap that they're laying for him, he would have talked about why it's right for them to wash, for them to not wash their hands that way. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't no, take it, wasn't the bait. A, it. wasn't just about washing hands, right. it was washing <laughs> hands their way. Exactly. The very specific dogmatic way laid out in the Mishnah, which was <laughs> <gonna do> <laughs> quite detailed. Uh, still is. But anyway, uh, so he's going back. Notice what he's doing. He is not letting them get away with it. He's going to the tradition, he's going to the Mishnah. Why do you believe the Mishnah? Why do you believe the Mishnah in light of the fact that the Mishnah contradicts the law? Now, this is verse 4. For the commandment, for God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift of God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. So this is what he's saying. In their worldview, the Mishnah is the explanator of the law. They're not in conflict with one another. They harmonize perfectly. Jesus shows them, no, they don't. They don't harmonize perfectly. As a matter of fact, they're at odds with one another, and he shows them definitively. It says in the law, you got to honor your father and mother. It says in the Mishnah, well, you know, there's some fine print there. You know, yeah, (laughs) you know, there's some fine print there. You got to really look with our spiritual lenses to see the fine print. Really what God is saying is, Honor your father and mother unless you've given your money to the temple for good purposes. You know, that they called it the Corban offering. You know, once you do that, then you're not you're not on the hook for this thing. Cause obviously it's better to honor God than honor your parents, right? And that's just talking about taking care of them in old age and so forth. That's right. Like financially supporting them. And Jesus points out, those are contradictory. Those are contradictory points. You're going to have to pick which lane you want to drive in,
0: but you can't have it both ways. So in dealing with their appeal to authority, what does Jesus do? He attacks the authority. So, And if you want to see this in a much more lengthy and productive way, Example in contrast, look at Nabil Qureshi's testimony in Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, where David That's Wood literally was given the opportunity to not only interact with Nabil regarding the Christian faith to establish his authority, but when Nabil was called out on the carpet and said, I will grant that Christianity, given the evidence, given the history, would be about 99% certain that it's true. But I am 100% certain that Islam is true. So if you were to offer me Christianity, it's that certainty I have in Islam that makes the difference in eternity. And then, of course, David said, all right, well, let's start reading your Islamic sources then and... uh well, <laughs> the rest is, as they say, history, But and heaven for him. But the point being made is that you deal with the authority if you're given this kind of scenario. If Someone comes up and says, well, he's the science. Do you question the science, not naming names? Then you say, well, okay, what about these times where that individual has made false scientific claims or false medical predictions throughout history? And then Facebook bans you and see the problem. So this is why we need to be aware of these things and also be sensitive when we also do it. Now, just as a follow-through, if there's anything more to add or say, uh, on top of that, what do you think would be a helpful way for people listening to not only properly cite Scripture if they're dealing with someone who challenges it, but also know what our authority is in Scripture? Why do we trust it as one?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Very good question. So me and Sean go over this often, If you're going to cite Scripture, if you're going to talk to someone about what we believe in Scripture, you're going to have to have the evidences that support Scripture. So I'm just going to give you a couple because there's a bunch. Uh, The first one, and this is where you got to start, because the main argument against the Bible right now is that it has been corrupted. This is what... Jehovah's Witness will say, I mean, I'm sorry, not Jehovah's Witness, this is what Mormons will say, this is what Muslims will say, this is what atheists will say, thanks to the wonderful Dan Brown book, The Da Vinci Code. So you're going to have to establish the fact that the Bible has not been changed. Now, the best places to go to get information on this, uh, Inspiring Philosophy has a couple really cool videos on YouTube that describe textual verification, why we believe in the Old and New Testament. Dan Wallace, not Dan Brown, (laughs) Dan Wallace is amazing. He is Is the scholar in this area Bruce Metzger who passed away gone to his reward hopefully that guy was a very good uh, textual critic you could look at his his is a little more dry I feel like Dan Wallace's is a little bit more accessible and obviously the most accessible would be um, inspired philosophy but Essentially, what you have to establish with people is how the Bible was assembled. How do we know what we have is correct? The Bible was not written on golden tablets and delivered to us. The Bible was not written down on a rock somewhere and we can go view the rock. How the Bible was delivered to us is it was in an uncontrolled setting in which Christians were copying the text that they had received and they were giving it to one another. There was no controlled authority over it. Christians were oppressed. Christians were persecuted in the early days. There was no central, cohesive church governance that was able to control the transmission of the text. Therefore, what we have is we have a lot of manuscripts. And when I say a lot of manuscripts, I mean we have a lot of manuscripts. We have over 6,000 in the original Greek. That's a lot. And if you compare it to any other writings in antiquity, it's massive, it's gargantuan, it's far above any other writing of antiquity that we have. Uh, that's just in the Greek, and the Syriac and other languages, that would be the Aramaic uh, and other languages like that, we have over 20,000. We also have over a million Church Father quotes, meaning that the early Christians, when they were writing to one another, they would quote extensively from the text of the Bible, and they would put it in their letters. So we have all these quotations from people who lived in the first couple centuries of the early Church that quote huge sections of Scripture. If you were to compile all these quotations, you'd be able to reassemble the entire New Testament minus, I think, 11 verses. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, Now, when you add all that together, you can have pretty large certainty that what we have in the Bible is is reflective of what was originally written. Now, why should we trust what was written? So we could establish that it's historically verifiable. How do we trust what's written in it? Well, you could start... In other areas, you can start with archaeology. If someone's into archaeology, are the things written in the scripture, are the the ways that people are describing events, did they actually happen that way? Do we have ways of verifying it through archaeology, through historians like Suetonius, Tacitus, and the like? Uh, If someone's into various scientific methods. You could show do the does the Bible get right the scientific things that it says. This is what Jesus tells people to do. He says, if I tell you earthly things and you cannot believe, why should you believe me when I tell you heavenly things? In other words, what are the things that the Bible says that are verifiable? can we test them? And when we test them, does it come through on the other side? Uh, The Bible makes philosophical statements. It makes psychological statements. It makes a lot of different statements that we can verify through uh, other means, through third parties. The other thing that's really important about the Bible is that it is Divine in the fact that it makes prophetic statements. One out of every three verses in your Bible is prophetic. So if the Bible makes all these statements about the future, which a lot of the statements that were about the future are actually the past for us, meaning <laughs> that when they were written, it was the future for them, but it's not the future for us. So for instance, Jesus makes a prediction. He says that the temple would be destroyed.
0: In a specific way.
1: In a very specific way, uh, that not one stone would be left upon the other. Now, either that's true or it's not. Right? And by the way, a lot of people are trying to date the gospel accounts later. So if you ever ask a scholar, why do you think that the gospel of Mark wasn't written until after 70 AD? They will have no other reason than. Well, Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, and there's no way he could have done that. So obviously, this was written after 70 AD.
0: No historical examination, no contemporary sources, no testing of manuscripts and the transmission therein, no contemporary sources and noting the circulation of the gospel or the datings that are provided within the internal or external evidence for that matter. Miracles aren't possible.
1: Yep. That's it. So it's just not true.
0: <laughs> so again, appeal to an authority.
1: So, yeah. <laughs> so Jesus does make this prediction. When Jerusalem fell, they accidentally melted one of the domes that was over the temple, and they had to excavate the gold by dismantling the temple brick by brick. So they literally took the stones off of one another until not one stone was left upon another. Only things left is the retaining wall, which you can visit today. Exactly. So that's a very specific prophecy, very specifically fulfilled. The prophecies in Daniel are insane once again you just, as an atheist, you have to say that Daniel was written after the fact. You, you, you could just, say as an atheist yeah. <laughs> that those things bothered you. Yeah, because if you agree of the dating of when Daniel was written, you have got some splaining to do, because there are very specific prophecies about the rise of Alexander the Great, about uh, the destruction of his empire and the splitting into four places. There are amazing prophecies about what was going to happen in the future of the Middle East as a
0: result of Daniel's prophecies, and all of them came true. So, And none of them were within his lifetime. Note, he did predict the transition of power from Babylon to Medo-Persia, but he saw that. I can grant maybe in post, but you look at uh, the vision of the two goats, you look at the four beasts, and of course you look at the follow-throughs in Daniel chapters 9 through 11. We're getting numerical here, and it is not left... Uh, I guess, skeptics with anything other than that appeal to, well... It was this written is, after the fact. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, he's a pious fraud, and so on. <laughs> so, anyway.
1: Exactly. So, there are all those. Uh, the evidence for the resurrection is incredible. I would encourage you guys to look up the the works of William Lane Craig. I think he condenses it in a very easy and accessible way. Uh, just look up, like, William Lane Craig on the resurrection, and he goes through it in a really, really cool way.
0: Gary boss Gary and Habermas. Argument um,
1: and then, gosh, I'm for, I'm totally, but N.T. Wright Wright also has a lot of good work on it. So those are some resources you could look at, but yeah, those, those are some basic reasons as to why we trust the scriptures and present that to people. So again, don't just appeal to the scriptures, defend the scriptures. Why do we believe that this is the truth of God? What has God done in history for us to believe that and establish it as the truth and not just something we take quote unquote on blind faith. Very, very important and so this is this fallacy that we've been talking about i I hope that this information is really useful to you guys it's one of the hardest ones to avoid because you have to really think you got to really do your homework when someone talks about something you have to know why is that authority invalid if you give information you got to show your work you got to be able to defend what you're saying on its own merits you can't just say well this person said it. You know That person said it. I read this article. I was reading, the. I saw this YouTube video. You can't do that. You have to say why it's true on its own merits as opposed to just appealing to some authority.
0: And also note, it's a reverse red flag when someone says, well, you said all that, but what's your source? That doesn't matter. If you want me to give citation, I'll write a paper on it later, but what have I said? And is there anything false in that? Because if it uh, came from a guy down in the street, it's just as true as if it was said from the guy at the head of the university. So, remember that, and continuing on. question from Isaiah who wants to know, does the Bible ever say to believe in yourself? Well, Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 would say the exact opposite. It says the heart, that yourself that's being appealed to, is the one that will never lead you wrong is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who could know it? And then it goes on to note in the next verse, I the Lord test the heart. I search the mind to give to each man according to his work. This is important to remember when we uh, ask ourselves the question, is this in fact what I'm doing and why? But it's even more important to note the only one who can truly determine that is God. If I make the assumption that I'm wrong and I need to test my motives, to test my heart, then I think I'm taking a step closer to the right direction than if I just followed every single whim and pull that I think appeals to me in the moment. Because we can be lied to, we can be manipulated, even by ourselves. We can give you horror stories, but I think the point still stands. When people make themselves the authority, it's not only idolatry, but it's outright foolishness, because we aren't infallible, we can be mistaken. If, on the other hand, they'd say, well, the Bible says to thine own self be true, that's William Shakespeare, not the (laughs) Bible. They say, well, you know, when it uh, talks about that innate goodness in man, like like the innocence of children, well, you never been around children, but we can go to Psalm 51, for example, it notes, in sin my mother conceived me. What is the actual issue here? The issue is, I think I'm right. And the Bible has many things to say against that attitude. Just open the book of Proverbs and you'll probably find something. Yeah,
1: yeah, the main refrain in the book of Proverbs is, do not be wise in your own eye. Fear, fear the Lord and trust and trust his wisdom. So, um. As Sean said, the Bible actually tells you to have a very skeptical view of your thoughts, to, to look at it, that the, the key to wisdom is to doubt yourself, is to actually say, is this right? Why do I believe it's right? Uh, Socrates, not a biblical figure, but very wise guy, I would say. Uh, he once said, the reason why I'm wiser than other men is because I know that I'm a fool. So, you know, like when you when you understand that really simple fact that I am a foolish person, I could be deceived very easily, my thoughts go astray, there's a way that seems right to a man, in the end therein lies destruction, that's Proverbs 14. Once you understand that truth about yourself and you become skeptical about your own thoughts, it actually opens you up to wisdom. It opens you up to self-growth. Now, the follow-up that you make is kind of interesting because it seems to get into the idea of self-confidence versus self-love. This is very prolific in our culture, and the quotation that you gave was from Leviticus 19 Love your neighbor as yourself.
0: Yeah, so the, the follow idea. through question is: If you don't love yourself, you can't love. What does the passage mean? Love your neighbor as yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So again, this this comes from a very modern uh, inclination to believe that what's most important, or should I say? what's most damaging to man is low self-esteem. So there's a lot of Freudian influence there, and uh, Adler also kind of taught on this, and same with Marx, interestingly. A lot of atheists right? yeah, all taught atheists. on this. Uh, but the, the idea, and, and Rousseau is definitely one of the big ones, but at any rate, uh, you don't need to know those guys. At any rate, the idea is that what's fundamentally wrong with man is that we have low self-esteem. And so from this low self-esteem, you commit all sorts of wrongs. So if someone's a bully, well, what happened to that person to make them a bully? Right. they have to have some sort of a tragic backstory in order to explain away what's happened to them and the behavior and the choices that they're making. So it's kind of like taking away people's personal autonomy and decision making and just saying, like, whatever you've done is attributed to your low self-esteem, which was given to you by abuse or neglect within the past. Uh, it's very interesting. It's, it's a very interesting theory, but it's one that's pretty easy to prove wrong. Uh, the big way to prove it wrong is to show that people who have very high self-esteem also commit a lot of wrongs. So in ancient the ancient world, they actually thought that the worst thing that could happen to man is what they would call hubris. That's arrogance or narcissism or thinking too much of yourself. And when you look at human history and you look at the people who really did some wrong stuff they weren't exactly suffering from a lack of self-love, right? So Hitler wasn't a insecure little boy who was trying to find validation through conquering the world. He, you read Mein Kampf, that dude liked himself. That dude really thought, I mean, the, the, the book is literally titled My Struggle. Right? He believed that his struggle was exemplary of what should happen in the world. You got to be pretty narcissistic to believe that. So yeah, the majority of wrong that's happened in the world has not been through lack of self-love. It's actually the opposite. It's been through arrogance and narcissism, and we need to protect ourselves against it. So what is the Bible saying? When it says, love your neighbor as yourself, what it's, it's just observing something that's very natural. Read Leviticus 19, read it in its context, and you'll see what's being discussed there is God telling the people of Israel to take care of the needs of their neighbors, right? Of the strangers and sojourners who come into the land of Israel. And what he's saying, what he's pointing to is obviously you take care of your own needs, If you didn't take care of your own needs, you'd be dead, right? If you didn't eat, you didn't drink, you didn't take care of your own body, you would be dead. So in the same way you care for yourself, care for others. That's the idea. Jesus turns that into what we traditionally call the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the idea there, that with the same kind of fervency that I care for my own needs, I must care for others. The Bible doesn't really say anything about self-esteem because, again, it is the pride of man that leads us away from God. What the Bible teaches is that self-esteem comes through the humility that is given to us through the gospel. Esteem so, others better than yourself. Exactly. So, Blaise Pascal, very famous philosopher, he said this, Jesus is the only God that you can come to without fear of condemnation, but through humility. So what what he means by that is if you go to any other God or religious system, it will necessarily puff you up because you are saving yourself. You are following a list of commandments, you are doing the right thing, and that's why you have salvation. But in Christianity, we have a very different viewpoint that you only get to God by understanding that you are undone by your sin and can't save yourself. So you must be humbled in your understanding of your own depravity, and that's what leads you to the gospel. And then through the gospel, then you are loved and affirmed by God, who is the God of the entire universe, and his words literally create, and that love lifts you up. But it's an understanding of self-worth in relation to God. It is not you just stomping your foot and say. I have value, I have worth, I am awesome. I am, you know, and this is by the way, you go to secular counselors, and I have had the opportunity to sit in with secular counselors. This is what they will tell people. You need to affirm yourself. You need to just look in the mirror and say, you're awesome. You know, you do great stuff. You're you're the best, right? So it's just self-affirmation. The Bible says, no, 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 not self-affirmation, God affirmation, right? You're affirmed by God but only through the gospel. It's not because you're great, it's actually in spite of the fact that you're pretty not great, right? It's in, spite of, it's in spite of the fact that Jesus had to die for you, but you are loved through that sacrifice. So it simultaneously deals with low self-esteem and high self-esteem.
0: And noting loving your neighbor as yourself, again, care for, would be the more appropriate transition in term through languages. But another example would be how the Apostle Paul made an illustration through marriage in quoting this passage in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 29, where he says that you're to love your spouse as yourself. Notice this not in a romantic and passionate sense, but he notes it through a point of contrast. He says, no man hated his own flesh, but as you stated, cares and cherishes it. Therefore, uh, husbands also ought to love their own wives as themselves, meaning that if you're going to provide for yourself, you're going to sustain your own life, God made the two of you one flesh. You should be caring for them the same way. Doesn't mean that, uh, oh, if I buy myself a movie, I got to buy her one too. That might... (laughs) Be nice, but that wasn't what Paul had in mind for an effective marriage. It's noting that value system and priority. Let us know if that helps you out. Isaiah, thank you for the questions. Uh, This is a question from Janice. Uh, Her friend Renee is dealing with stage four colon cancer. She encourages prayer to all those listening. We'll be happy to join you in that. Uh, But also wants to know what are some good passages for her to read and reflect on? Her suggestion is Psalm 16. Do we have any more? Because she could use it. I hear you. So, uh, passages for encouragement, especially during those kinds of times.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, uh, in my own personal time, I just finished Victor Frankel's book, *Man's Search for Meaning*. Excellent book. Really, really good. Victor Frankel survived uh, the Holocaust and multiple Nazi death camps. And so the first part, very short. It it wouldn't take you long to finish. It would probably take you a couple hours to read it from front to back. The first part is his experiences in the Nazi death camps. And then the second part is him explaining his version of therapy, which he calls logotherapy. I'm not going to get into that right now. But in his experiences in the death camp, he explains how is it that somebody going through such intense suffering can choose life. Right to can choose to get up every morning and live out their lives and not take their own life, and he goes through. It's very very engaging and it just really puts things in perspectives and help you help you understand that. My favorite quote in the whole book. He's actually quoting from Dostoevsky, and Dostoevsky said, "My greatest fear is that I will not be worthy of my suffering." So there's this understanding that Dostoevsky had, and uh, by the way, he had a lot of Christian influence on him, Fyodor D- Dostoevsky. What he's saying, and I'm going to read the passage that I think he's alluding to, that he's quoting from, is that suffering in the Christian's perspective is something that not only is reflective of our Lord, right? Jesus himself endured massive suffering, but it's also something that is always meaningful. There is a weight, there is a worth to what you're going through. And your job, your role in that light is to have the right perspective on it. Right? If you see it as just something that's meaningless and horrible, something just to get through, you're going to miss out on what God has for you. And when you have stage four cancer, that means that you're going to die. Your time is Everyone's time is limited, but when you have stage four cancer, your time is limited and it has a stop clock on it. And that makes it a lot more intimidating and makes it a lot more difficult to deal with. And Viktor Frankl talks about this a lot in his book where he says the people who gave up hope were the ones who didn't see every day as an opportunity to live. Right, so we need to understand what that means. But Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, again, this is the passage that I feel like is really influencing these men. It says this, Therefore we don't lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For a light affliction which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we don't look to the things that are seen, But at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal." To be worthy of the suffering that you endure means seeing a purpose and a meaning behind it. And always trying to discover, understanding we serve a God who suffered for us and his suffering had meaning, therefore whatever I go through also has meaning, and God help me to see what that is. Help me to see how you want me to redeem the time I have left. Help me to see what you have in store for me every day that I'm left on this earth, because every day is a gift from God. And again, it's insane reading Viktor Frankl's book where he's talking about life being a gift when he is less than 80 pounds, starving to death, being fed maggoty bread, and working on railroad tracks every day, trying to get them built up in freezing cold German weather and every day facing the possibility of being sent to the gas chambers and executed. And talking about finding hope there and joy there, it's really incredible. But what that proves to us is what Paul's saying. There is no circumstance in life that can actually steal your will to live. That is, that is a power that exists inside of your own mind. That's why there's a lot of people in our country who, I mean, suicide is at an all-time high in our country. And so you can have all the blessings and all the prosperity in the world and still not choose life. But what Paul's saying is when I see meaning, when I see purpose behind my life, including my suffering, then I have a means of getting up, then I have a means of, as he puts it, not losing heart. So,
0: yeah, and again, when you're going through a time of pain, the least helpful thing is to look at things that draw more attention to that because even in the search for purpose, nothing distracts you more than reflecting on your current circumstances. So, for Renee's particular situation, my best recommendation and this is tested through experience is have them focus on the person of Jesus because whether they see him that night or they get the opportunity to reflect on on him more today. They've done two productive things. They've focused off of themselves and onto someone who can actually help them in their circumstances. My all-time favorite verse in the Bible, Revelation 117. Have her look up. What is Jesus quoting? Spoiler, it's Isaiah 44 6. Look for passages in the Old Testament, for example, where Jesus is appearing to people as the angel of the Lord. Look for the sort of things that he claimed about himself that shows, and this is what's important, the point of emphasis about Jesus, that he's in control, that he's the final judge, that he's been given this authority from the Father, that if you worship him, that you are worshiping the Father, you don't worship him, you don't worship the Father. Focus on engaging their mind on someone who can comfort them, and where else to start than Jesus. Make sure that he's the focus in her circumstances, and again, if she needs comfort directly addressing it, because people are different, they'll cope with pain differently, probably won't uh, make Make jokes in light of a chemotherapy and so forth, not referencing a movie at all, uh, the point still needs to be made. Talk to people with where they're at. If they need a distraction, focus them on Jesus. If they need clarification, help them find purpose in the midst of their pain. But uh, noting as well the kind of support that we can provide for them to make sure that they know they're not alone in this. Uh, Peter, would you like to pray for Yeah. Uh,
1: Father, we love you so much, and we're thankful for the example you've given us, not only in life, but in suffering and in death. You are the God who has died and given us an example of how to face that with courage and to face that with hope. So I do pray for Renee. I do pray for um, everyone in her life that she would understand that there is purpose behind what she's going through, that there would be encouragement and strength in her inner being, and that she would begin to see the purpose that you have for her, not just uh, in an eternal sense, but in a day-to-day sense that she would be able to wake up and understand that chronic pain and suffering is a daily thing. It's, it's not for us to think far into the future, but it's for us to just handle each day as it comes, knowing that you'll give us the strength to make it through and to find the purpose and the reason for each day that is given. So uh, we thank you, Lord. And those of us who are going through prosperous times, I hope that we could learn from this and understand that life is fleeting. In Psalm 90, Moses says, teach us to number our days and in the innermost parts to learn wisdom. And that's very important for us to understand that our days are not unlimited, they are numbered, and we need to learn how to use each day in a way that honors you, Lord, not thinking that we have uh, all of our lives to get things right, but to really focus our attention on doing the right thing as it presents itself to us. We love you, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing and in your name. Amen. And Dan, uh, n- another quick thing uh, it says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Uh, for, for you, uh, the person writing the question, try to be around that person as much as you can and um sometimes you know when i visit people in the hospital just hanging out to, you know, getting their mind off of, like Sean said, in any way you can, you don't have to go there and just be in the doom and gloom and talk about their cancer all the time, you know, play a game with them, you know, take them out to the park, you know, do whatever you can to let them know that you're loved, you're cared for. Sometimes the darkest part of suffering is being trapped in your own mind. So, uh, try your best to get that person out of that place and to help them.
0: All right. Um, question as a follow-through regarding secular counselors. This is from Casey. Uh, Obviously she's asking for uh, lists of therapists you would recommend as opposed to Christian counselors. Obviously this broadcast goes far beyond local, so there'd be a scope to that list that we probably wouldn't help most of those listening. So maybe to rephrase the question, what are some I guess a green flags. I don't know the football <laughs> term uh, for counselors, secular or otherwise, that can still provide godly advice. They can tell the truth, even if they're not uh, fellowshipping with the spirit. And of course, some red flags to watch out for if so that this isn't h- helping me long term.
1: Yeah, uh, the first thing is, is I would encourage you to find uh, biblical counselors and. This doesn't mean that the person has to be accredited. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes there's a biblical-based accreditation. But sometimes it's just someone who works at a local church and talking to them. Uh, What I would say about the counseling industry is that it is in decline right now in a serious fashion. Uh, The main reason is because the people being educated into counseling are going to universities that are teaching them that the best form of care is what we call affirmative care. Affirmative care, especially affirmative therapeutic care, is actually an oxymoron. It doesn't actually exist. You cannot affirm somebody and expect them to get better. You're, you also
0: don't help practices when you criminalize actual therapy. That's uh, right. That's another so, topic.
1: So again, it goes back to the self-esteem problem. A lot of counselors are told that what people need is validation and affirmation. That's not true. I've even talked to biblical counselors who implement that in the way that they talk to people. Uh, I was talking to this one really quick story. I was talking to this one biblical counselor pastor. As a matter of fact, uh, in the local community and a woman was coming to him for being um, essentially claiming that she had been abused and we knew that that wasn't the case. Right. So he knew it. We knew it. Everybody knew that she wasn't actually abused in her, uh, you know, in her childhood or anything like that. But she was claiming that she had been abused and he was just affirming her in it. And I was like, well, why would you affirm her in something that you know is not true? And he said, Well, she just needs validation right now. She's been through a lot. I said, Yeah, but you're validating her in something that's untrue. Like you're you're literally creating trauma in her life that doesn't exist, and then you're helping her out of it. Wouldn't it be more loving? to challenge her and say, hey, did this really happen? Are you sure it happened? What do you mean when you say abuse? But he wouldn't do that. So find counselors who are going to be biblically based. They're going to point to scripture, but they're also willing to challenge you. They're willing to confront you and say, hey, that's not true. That's not right. That's not correct. It's very, very difficult to find a good counselor nowadays, but uh, you know, pray about it. Ask your local church. You know, if you have a a local body of Christ and they're sound doctrinally, they will more than likely be connected to various counselors that they will trust and send people out to. That's what we do at our
0: church as well. So yeah, very difficult to find that, but they are out there. Yeah, so start with the church, but uh, note as well, if uh, truth from the mouths of an atheist is still truth, nonsense from the mouths of your pastor is still nonsense. We'll continue with that theme today. Uh, Here's a question we received from Ron and Linda, who want to know if alternative lifestyle individuals can be saved by, and this is, I think, a kind of a tangent, but we'll address it with the time that we have, abandoning their lifestyles on the basis that others feel they can sin again and again and then come to the throne of grace. So I think the interesting aspect of this is that fine line between the attitude of, well, I'm forgiven, therefore it's permission in regards to sin—Romans 6, 1 doesn't exist in the Bible— or the mindset of, I keep falling to this sin, I'm surrounded by and ultimately dogmatized by an environment and culture that affirms me in these things, and it's really hard for my relationship with God to grow. So when we obviously have anxiety for the former, but more assurance for the latter, what needs to be kept in mind and kept in balance with the uh, two minutes or so we have left? Yeah, so... Um...
1: I wish I had more time for this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. With alternative lifestyles that are affirmed by society, we have to remember that our ethics, our morality does not come from society, it comes from scripture. So that's very, very important. And I think sometimes we take that for granted as Christians. You got to remember that Christianity was always counterculture throughout human history, meaning that what we believed about how we should behave always ran contrary to what the culture was saying. It's only been the last couple hundred years in the West that that's not been the case, and by the way, most Christians live under that kind of tyranny. So cultural acceptance does not equal admission. It doesn't equal God saying, okay, your culture approves of it, good. Uh, We have to be very careful about that and understand the Bible should and does run contrary to what our culture says is correct. Now, we are forgiven, But remember, forgiveness doesn't mean that God has accepted our behavior. It actually means the opposite. What forgiveness means biblically is it means that a price was paid, you just didn't pay it. So God, in other words, got rid of your sin by putting it on his son. So there was a penalty for it, but it was transferred to Jesus in an act of love and mercy. It's very poor form to look at someone taking on your debt and running up more just to spite them. Right? So if someone is gracious enough to pay off a loan or pay off a debt that you have, the way you thank them is trying your best to honor that kind of sacrifice in living a way that's financially responsible. In the same way, if God has forgiven me, I should do my best to try to follow his commandments and to do my best to, to listen to what he says. Will I do it perfectly? No. That's why grace and mercy are new every morning. But it means that if I want to honor God My aim should be to obey him. So it is possible that people in these alternative lifestyles will be saved because what it takes to be saved is belief in what Jesus has done for us. That belief should translate to our behavior. But yeah, that is what it takes to be saved. So people in those lifestyles can be saved in spite of the fact that they're living in sinful positions.
0: But what's affected is our fellowship with God, and that is something that we should be pursuing because there are also rewards. And we don't want them to be in the First Corinthians 3 scenario of suffering loss. It's not what we want for any of us, let alone someone who's struggling or perhaps should be struggling more. God bless you. We'll see you all tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time.